Welcome to week six of the Anonymous There podcast. Not too long ago, I watched a documentary called The Exit Strategy, which was produced by Spartan. You probably know Spartan for their races. They do long-form endurance races with a ton of obstacles. They're very challenging, but a lot of fun. The movie features Joe DeSena, the founder of Spartan, and Cal Fussman. Joe is a no-BS leader whose mission is to rip 100 million people off their couch and get healthier. In the movie, Cal is an out-of-shape middle-aged man who reluctantly just started training for a very challenging race called the Ultra. We're talking 30-plus miles in elevation, all uphill, with 60 insane obstacles along the way. Not to spoil anything, but he goes through what seems to be a life transformation on camera. When watching, I got the feeling that this was Cal's first challenge. I was completely intrigued by his personality and hilarious storytelling, so I started to do a little research on him, and I found out how wrong I was. When Cal was younger, he trained to fight Julio Cesar Chavez. At the time, Julio was 87-0 with 75 knockouts and the junior welterweight champion of the world. Then I discovered Cal is a James Beard award-winning writer who wrote for Inside Sports, GQ, and Esquire magazine. He has interviewed some of the world's most influential people, including Muhammad Ali, Jeff Bezos, Serena Williams, Jimmy Carter, Mikhail Gorbachev, Joe Biden, and so many more. Cal learned to master his craft of asking powerful questions, but not in the way you would think. This episode explores some of Cal's journey, from Spartan to Julio Cesar Chavez, from his world travels to getting to know Robert De Niro and Larry King. I came out of the interview thinking even more about life and the power of creating your own stories. I'm excited for you to listen to the wisdom of the legendary Cal Fussman. All right, as stated on today's show, I have the one and only Cal Fussman here. Cal, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Joe. It is such an honor to talk to you today. I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to this this moment to have you on not almost there you uh, you embody this concept that I created called not almost there and that's just that you're constantly pushing your limits and I cannot wait to introduce the audience who doesn't know you into some of your history and the stories that you've created but before we go there you've lived a life full of full of adventure I mean really adventurous but for now, I have to ask you this burning question. What was harder to train for, your Spartan adventures or your fight with Julio Cesar Chavez? Uh, well, I, I got to, as much as I love Spartan and its CEO, Joe DeSena, and they did put me through a little misery there, but... Training to fight Julio Cesar Chavez when he was 87 wins and no losses. And I was a 37-year-old man at the time. And I had boxed before, but let's not be ridiculous. Uh, 
somebody who boxed in New York City Golden Gloves compared to one of the greatest fighters of all time is a pretty big gap. And so I had to go back to the gym and basically learn how to fight all over again. And I, I got beaten up every day for like six months. Uh, because even when I was starting to be able to move and throw punches and duck, they were, the people were just so much better than me. Plus, they were like 20 years younger. And I had to go up those steps every day knowing that, you know, there's going to be four or five rounds of sparring. And as... My trainer, Harold Weston, said, you ain't got no friends in there. And, and so when I got done with that training, I was definitely in the best shape of my life. And it, it actually, it might have saved my life uh, for other reasons, but that pushed me as far as I could possibly go. So I, I want to go there for a second, then we have to rewind. When you say it almost saved your life, I know when you were starting your Spartan adventures, you were a little bit out of shape as well. And you have a documentary out that I want to tell everyone about. It is uh, Spartan Exit Strategy. It's on Amazon and iTunes. It's, it's incredible. It's with you and Joe DeSena and your, uh, the adversity that you go through training for a Spartan race. But to see, the, to see you over the course of what it was about two years and how you went from you know, not being able to do a pull-up to you're, in, you're, you're on a beach in California, Venice Beach, and you're you know doing pull-ups and you're exercising with all the people that I've driven by on you know a, a bicycle and have watched, and I could have I could have seen you technically. So how did how did that that time period in your life, in terms of you having to um, get in shape, because it's always hard it's always harder to get in shape again compared to when you were younger, and you you just said it almost saved your life. Yeah, well, that's a different story, but you make a great point. And there's something that you did not see in that Spartan documentary. Uh, I was in the beginning when I was supposed to be training. I was 30 pounds overweight, and it's not stated in the documentary that I had just started a business speaking like around the world. So I was like getting on planes, flying across the country, going to speak, coming back. And like Joe's expecting me to be climbing ropes at this time. And he like doesn't understand why I'm not getting up the rope where the reality is I was pushing myself uh, to actually an extreme point just in another area of my life because it was it was like well you know what it's like to do a startup you're you're in it like 24 7. oh yeah 
And, and so it was very frustrating to Joe because he didn't really understand what was going on in the working portion of my life. And he thought that I should be training on the beach for four hours a day when I, I'm up in an airplane. And so that has to be considered. Uh, once I was able to carve out the time to like, start to go to the beach every day and, and learn to climb the ropes and uh, throw a spear. Uh, and, you know, that was, it took a lot of time out of my day to drive to places where there were spears and targets to aim at. Uh, so it took me a while uh, to get this moving, uh, but I, I really loved every minute of that. And I actually was arguing with Joe on film, but the reality was that I was often wishing that I could be training while I was flying across the country. And then when it got to the point where you go to the course in Lake Tahoe, where you're at altitude, I mean, you just can't mess around at that point. It's not, this is no joke. If you're gonna be running at 10, 11, 12,000 feet, you better be in shape. And it was, it was really gratifying to go through this process and just start to be able to defeat these obstacles that are thrown in front of you. And, you know, even in the beginning, uh, when you're crawling under barbed wire, uh, you know, going like a hundred yards, you're like ready for it to end. At the end, I could have rolled under that barbed wire for a long time and I'd be laughing because I just got myself into shape to, to do that. And it's a beautiful thing. And as soon as this pandemic ends, I am going right back to Spartan racing uh, because it just keeps you honest. And that's number one. Number two, unbelievable camaraderie among people. I, I had someone helping me, little Misty Diaz. Uh, you, you noticed her from, from the film. She was born with spina bifida. She competes with crutches. Like she finished five trifectas in a year on crutches. And when I say a trifecta, there's a three mile sprint with obstacles. There's like a 10 mile super. Then maybe a 17 mile beast. And, and so you, you've got like people doing amazing things in these races. And always, they always have a handout for you to help you along. And so it's such a beautiful experience to be pushing yourself while you have people at your side uh, that are encouraging you. And then you start to encourage other people. And I, I couldn't recommend it more, especially when you look at statistics that are telling us that only one out of four people in this country 
of age to enter the military are in the shape to do so. I mean, this is serious. I mean, we are working to a point where we're overweight as a nation, uh, pointed toward obesity. And Spartan is the answer to that. You go out there, <laughs> you're going to expend so much energy and you're going to feel great at the end of it. So I, I could not urge you more as soon as this pandemic is done to go out and even start with a three mile Spartan race and you, you'll get hooked immediately. Getting in the ring with Julio Cesar Chavez is a little different story. <laughs> Before we go there, I, I have a quick question about that race to stand up for a second. So in the documentary, you were doing what looked like the beginning of the death race. I don't know if you were just practicing under the barbed wire. You didn't really do the full marathon under barbed wire, did you? No, did you? no, no. I, I, that was like, that, that, was, uh, that was a bit intense. Well, he, he basically created a track that was just like filled with rocks. <laughs> I mean, and it's not, it's not like, okay, there's barbed wire up and there's dirt and you can just crawl along. I mean, they're like rocks that are going to dig into your side. <laughs> and you go around that one time, you get the idea. But, you know, he advertised this race as a marathon, the idea of going, what, uh, 26.2 miles under barbed wire over these rocks is just insane. And, you know, this is what Joe loves to do. So it, it was pretty interesting because I knew about you as a writer. Then I watched the documentary and as I'm watching it, I'm thinking this is your first time going through some real physical thing because you were, you know, you started off at a certain point and then at the end it was like a Rocky movie, right? It, it, in my view, it was, it was an amazing story. Then I, I did research, more research, and I, I couldn't believe everything that you did from a physical perspective. So now let's go back to Julio Cesar Chavez. And at that point in your life, you're 37 years old, as you were saying, how did that save your life okay well i i'll just wind this back so you could understand where it all comes from so so basically i entered the new york golden gloves when i was 16 out of a love of boxing without having any idea how to box and I went into the gym, I think it was about three weeks before my fight. I registered and then realized, okay, I got to train. And I went into the gym and there was this wise trainer who asked me what I was doing. And he pulled me over to the side and he said, look, you can't figure this out in three weeks. Even if you can like fight on the streets. I mean, these people that you're going to be in against have been in many cases training for years. They know how to fight and you don't. So he said, why don't you do this? You just start coming every night. Don't go to the golden gloves this year. You go next year. And in the meantime, in that year, I'm going to show you what you need to do. 
And they have these, what's called smokers, these fights that like nobody really knows about them. They're for amateurs and people just go and have a good time and, and, and watch. And he said, you do a bunch of those and you're gonna start to win and you'll feel good about yourself. And then when you get into the golden gloves, you'll be in a position to contend. And of course I looked at him and said, nah, 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 I'm, I'm here to fight. I'm going to the golden gloves. And I just kind of adopted this wild, crazy style where I just could throw punches from all angles. <laughs> I, I, no, no protection, but just pure energy and fun to watch. And so the people in the gym would be watching me and there was a guy who had won the Golden Gloves. General Mills was his nickname. He's watching me. And after I get done hitting the bag, he said, when are you fighting? And I said, like, next Friday. And he said, I don't know what's gonna happen, but the crowd is gonna love it. <laughs> <laughs> So Friday night arrives and there's somebody from this gym who's supposed to take me into New York City. I grew up in Long Island to prepare, to be prepared to fight. And I'm waiting and waiting, waiting. And this person doesn't, is not showing up. So now I, I can't even get to the fight. I make a phone call and find somebody who's gonna give me a lift. And I've got no corner man. I don't know how to fight. I don't know how this works. I'm a complete novice. And I arrive at the arena with a little time to get ready. And I'm, I'm told like you need a corner man. You can't just get in the ring alone. And so one guy who's nearby and does some corner work said, all right, I'll, I'll take you in. And so I said, okay. And I got all dressed and the place is packed. And as I come out, I mean, it was right around that time in the early, the early seventies and, and it was not long after when Rocky made the movie. You know, it's like the great white hope. And most of the other fighters on the card were either African-American or Latino. And the audience had been largely white for years and they kept coming back. And so all of a sudden I come out of the dressing room and I am like Rocky Balboa. It's like, whoa, the great white hope is here. And everybody is going crazy. And I'm, I'm stepping the ring and I'm looking around and I almost can't fathom what is going on because there's like such a roar from the crowd and I'm looking around and now I gotta go fight. But it's almost like my mind is curious as to what's happening. Instead of being focused on the fight, I'm like wondering you know, where am I? And so, I go out to the center of the ring 
and kind of tap gloves with my opponent. And at that moment, like I could just look at his face and, and know this guy has been doing this for eight years. He was everything, everything that the trainer told me on that first night was like right in front of me. You do this for eight years, you turn 16, then you go in the gloves. And so the bell rings and my style is just to go after him, just throwing these crazy punches. But it's almost as if like I'm looking around, looking at the crowd, everything is a kaleidoscope. And the next thing I know, I see like three fingers in front of my eyes. And then I hear like four, five, six. And and now I'm like completely awake, say like, like, whoa, how did this happen? And so I get to my feet and the ref says, are you okay? Checks my gloves. And then this fighter comes in at me again and I see his right hand come back. And just that moment, the bell rings. I have no idea what's happened in the whole round, but the bell rings, I'm saved by the bell. I go back to my corner and now I'm awake. And I know like my father's out there, he's bought his friends. This is like a huge, I can smell the humiliation, but I know, okay, I'm, I'm all right. Go, go get him, go throw punches. That's what you can do. And the referee comes over and he's saying to me like, are you, are you okay, son? And I'm just telling myself, I'm gonna throw a punch, I'm gonna knock this guy out. And the ref is talking to me. And then the next thing I know, the ref is like, <laughs> waving a fight. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> I was just getting going. And you know, the reality is I was, I was concussed. And the referee said, like, you had enough, pal. Come back another day. And so um, my dad takes me home and it's a, terrible humiliation. But the worst part is that it becomes part of the family lore. At any time somebody comes to meet me, the first thing the family will say, hey, have you ever heard about the night that Cal fought in the Golden Gloves? And then elaborate on the story uh, to get a good laugh. And like I endured this for years and years and years, right? So, all right, now we're gonna go ahead like 20 years. And it's another long story, but I end up traveling around the world without a home for 10 years. And finally at the end of the, well, I didn't know it was the end of the trip, but I'm in Brazil and I meet a woman and I fall in love and I know, oh man, this is the end of the trip because we're gonna get married and either I'm gonna have to stay here or she's gonna come up to New York. And she decides to come up to the United States. So of course, she can't even speak English. But she comes up to meet my family 
And as soon as my family sees her, I said, hey, have you ever heard the story about Catherine Golden Gloves? And, and I'm realizing at that point, oh man, I might start to have kids soon. You know, my kids are gonna hear this story. Like, I better, I gotta, I gotta do something about this. Uh, because this is, you, you don't want your kids saying this to you. So what's happening is I'm watching the fights on TV a few weeks later and Julio Cesar Chavez is fighting. He's fighting Greg Haugen and he's got Haugen hurt. And I'm like yelling at the TV, like, finish him off. You got him, finish him off. And my wife hears this and she says, yeah, I, I know all about you and, and your boxing career. And I realized in that moment, this is my opening. And I turned to her, I say, you see that guy, Julio Cesar Chavez, like one of the great champions of all time, I'm gonna fight him. And my wife burst into laughter, but I'm realizing that if I can fight against Julio Cesar Chavez, whatever happens is gonna sound better than the Golden Glove story that my kids are gonna hear. They're gonna be hearing about how their dad is in the ring with the greatest fighter, the greatest Mexican fighter of all time. And so at, the, at that point, I was working for GQ Magazine and I went in to my editor, a guy named David Granger, and I said, do you think you guys would buy it if I could get in the ring with Julio Cesar Chavez? And the editor said, I think I'm gonna to have to talk to my boss about this. So he goes to talk to his boss. And next time I see my editor, he said, uh, will you sign a waiver that basically is not indemnifying us in any way, you're on your own, whatever happens, whatever body bodily injuries you incur, it's on you. So I say, all right, I'll sign the waiver. And they say, fine, we're behind you. We'll support you. We'll give you like training money and we'll fly you down to Mexico. And that was the start of six months of brutal training with a guy named Harold Weston who actually fought for a world title. And when I went in and told him my idea, he just started laughing because he could look at me and he's just like, what are you doing here? But, but Harold loved clothing and GQ was his favorite magazine. And so this was his way to get into GQ. And so what he said to me was, okay, I'll tell you what, you come back tomorrow and we'll see how you do. And then I'll tell you if I'm gonna train you or not. So I come back the next day and this guy just put me through a grinder. I mean, the whole gym was watching me in agony and it was like three, three and a half hours. It wasn't like, let's get used to this. It was, I'm gonna run you out of this gym. You are never coming back here. And I got home and I literally like rang the bell, 
the door opened and I literally fell in my wife's arms and she just like dragged me to the bathtub with some Epsom salts and hot water. And they were making bets in the gym whether I'd be back the next day. But I came back the next day. And when I came back, Harold said, okay, I'll trade you. And so this went on for six months. And the crazy part of it was Harold was a really smooth boxer. And the deal that we made with Julio Cesar Chavez to a friend of mine was that this was only going to be one round, one three minute round. And so Harold figured he could teach me just how to like run around the ring for three minutes just to escape. And I said, no, that's not the way this is going to go. I'm coming straight at him. <laughs> and Harold just said, oh, no. But he taught me to fight in that style. I was short, short arms. So he taught me to bob and weave. And pretty soon, you know, I was hitting the bag good and I was getting in the ring and I was hitting people and getting hit and learning to duck. And so after six months, Harold says to me, you know what, you are in great shape. I'm really proud of everything you've done. But I, I don't think you understand, like the guys you're in the, in the ring with are young professionals. You're going off to fight like one of the greatest fighters who's ever lived. Like, you, you got to know that you have no chance of hitting him. There is no punch you can throw that he's going to let get by. And, you know, the first time he hits you to the body, you're never going to have felt anything like that before. And he said, I'm going to give you a plan. And this is your, I don't know if you're going to be able to pull it off because he may just hit you once to the body after five seconds and you, you're going to be down on the floor, unable to breathe. But he may just want to see how things, what, a little what you got and move around with you for a few minutes. If that happens, he said, I want you to throw a left jab, a right hand and a left hook. And he's going to catch them all. He said, I want you to do it again. Left hand, right hand, left hook. He's going to catch him all. Do it again. He said, I want you, for as long as you are standing, to keep throwing that same combination over and over again. Left jam, right hand, left hook. And he said, if you're still standing by the 17th time you do that, and he will have caught all of your punches, on the 18th time, I want you to go left jam, right hand, and then another right hand. I said, okay. Fight starts, and like Julio is very curious because he's doesn't like, want to kill me. He doesn't know what he's dealing with. So he comes out and he was just moving around. It's just like Harold says: left hand, right hand, left hook, he catches it. Left jab, right hand, left hook, he catches it. Over and over, this moves. He's just moving around. Okay, he's got it. Got it. Finally, on the 18th time, left hand, right hand, 
And then I wind up and just nail him in the jaw with the right hand. And he goes back into the ropes. And he looks at me like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> and now he's after me. And now I'm like running and running. And he hits me with a left hook to the side, to the liver. And man, I'm telling you, it was like having, you know, those long Hoover vacuum cleaner hoses stuffed right down your throat into your esophagus. And then it's like the switch gets flipped up and my whole stomach just started coming through my mouth and the bell rings. I start walking back to the corner. I did it. <laughs> I lasted around with one of the great fighters of all time. And I'm almost delirious. And I should have pointed out that the fight was in Mexico, in the mountains where he was training for his next fight. So this was at an altitude too. After this one round at altitude and taking that shot, I was, <laughs> I was cooked. But he looked over to me and he said, Otro, you want another? And I looked back and I said, see, si, mas. And we had another round. And then he started beating me up pretty good. I, but it put me in the best shape of my life. And what happened a few months later, and this gets back to the initial question about how it kind of might have saved my life. I was at Carnival in Brazil with my wife, who was then pregnant, many months pregnant. And I don't, you ever see any video of Carnival in Brazil where everybody is out dancing in the street and you're oh, yeah. dressed in feathers and spangles? And so that was my wife and I. We had been, I was doing another story for GQ. I went straight from the ring to the spangles and the feathers. And our group, the summer school that we were included in, was scheduled to dance at like three in the morning. And the area that this school was in was like a ghetto. And so after the, the dancing, you all walk back up to this ghetto. And it was a beautiful night. The dancing was great. It was everything that you dream of. And afterward, we all start lazily walking back to sleep in this ghetto. And at the time, uh, what was happening was they had what was called Ahastown, where you would young kids who like had no money or they're like kids in gangs would line like each side of a bridge and they would look to see somebody who might have money somebody that could rob or whatever and then all at once they they would attack and so what happens is some of the people that I was walking with uh, from the area who knew the area, they got scattered. And one guy in particular, Toko, he went below the bridge 
to take a leak. And after he's done, he comes back up on the bridge and he sees one of these ahastals setting up. And I'm like right in the middle of it, the gringo. Uh, and my, my wife is kind of next to me. My wife was next to me and she's six or seven months pregnant. And now I'm looking around and I realize what's going on. And I, I know, man, like this, this is it. Uh, and so I say to my wife, go to like, get it away from me because they're coming after me. So you just go off to the, to the side and I'm going to go to the other side. And the first person that's coming at me, and I, I could only think this because I had just been to ring with Julio Cesar Chavez. So I'm kind of like envisioning myself in another body, but I just know in my head, like the first person who comes at me, if they're running at me, I'm just going to grab and flip them off the bridge. And Little did they know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you know where I've just been. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And so I, like, I'm ready to fight. I'm not sitting, I'm not sitting, you know, standing there cowering. It's like, okay, let's, let's do this. In the meantime, I was just telling my wife, you, you go, just, they're coming from me, you go. Now at just this moment, this guy Toko comes up on the bridge and he, now he knows exactly what's going to happen. And he, he had this big camera with gigantic lens because it's carnival and, you know, that's how you capture it. And he tucks the camera and the lens uh, under his like, shirt so that it looks like a gun. And he races like right in front of me all the while, like yelling at his friends. And then now they're all like around me and Toko is like holding what looks like a bazooka saying like, this guy's with us. He's our friend, like leave him alone. And there's this standoff at which point and Toko and his buddy are saying, Cal, like get to the other side of the bridge as fast as you can. We'll deal with this. And they basically came to an agreement that they weren't going to fight because they didn't know if Toko could blow up everybody's head off. And I basically, maybe it would have happened the same way if I had not been in the ring with Julio Cesar Chavez, but I believe, I know that communication is 10%, the words we speak is 30%, your tone of voice, and it's 60% your body language. And even though I was the gringo dressed in spangles and feathers, there was something coming off me saying, okay, let's, let's go. I get it. Let's fight. And it just might have slowed up the attack because they didn't quite know 
like what to make of the moment and, and when to attack. And in that time, Toko got up and they all saved my ass. And so we now have a 26 year old son who survived and we got a story to tell about it. That's incredible. I mean, that confidence level had to be so different though, even though you said, yeah, I probably would have handled it just that, just knowing what you went through. And now you're faced with these these uh, hoodlums, you know, that are coming at you. It had to be just at a drastically different level, even even if you didn't realize it at that moment. But that's uh, that's great. One of the things I was going to tell you is I had a similar story. I'm kind of living your journey in a different way. When I was younger, I too was in a boxing competition, and it was my first one, and it wasn't Golden Gloves yet. But I had been training at the Chicago Park District, and my my coach, I'm two months into this, he puts me in this match at this country club, and I'm I'm pretty young and cut at this point, and and I come up on stage, and or before I go up to the ring, I see these two guys in front of me, and they're practicing, and I'm like, oh my god, I hope I don't fight them. And they're going, they're going, they're so quick. They're going at each other. And I was just like, that's, that's like, those guys are too much, man. That's, that's crazy. I'm not ready for that. Right. In my mind, I was psyching myself out. So those guys fought each other. It was a great match. And then I see my opponent, my opponent's like twice the size of those other people. And I could tell this guy has been doing it for a long time, just like you Oh saw man. that. And my whole thing is, I just don't want to get knocked out. I just don't, you know. So as soon as I, I start walking up to the ring, all these bets, like, you know, it's a country club. It's all guys. They're throwing these bets. And a lot of people are betting on me just because of my looks. But I didn't have any experience whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't have any family members with me. But I remember this so vividly. The match starts. This, this guy is just toying with me the whole time. Like, I couldn't even barely touch him. And... I get through the first round, get through the second round. He's hitting me so hard in the head, but I'm just like, I can't get knocked out. I can't get knocked out. I, I might've landed like two or three punches at, at the end of it. I, I ended up making it through. I think he probably felt bad more than anything. You know, this, the crowd's like booing me at this point. I get back, (laughs) I get back on the bus. I go home and I realize I can't hear like my right ear. I couldn't hear anything for like three days. And I didn't, I didn't have insurance. I was younger and, and I didn't go to the doctor or anything. I'm like, I just hope my hearing comes back. It was like the craziest. Oh, the you gr- couldn't hear anything? Well, it, it was muffled. Like my right ear was really muffled. It was, it was bad. But it started to get a little better, like day one, really bad. And then it got better over time. <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely fine now. But it was, it was a, kind of a crazy moment. I was just immersed in that experience. So fast forward to now. I've always been thinking about that. And I just see these guys in the crowd that that were booing me as I was leaving. So I said, you know what? I just turned 43 this year. I'm going to learn jujitsu and be in a jujitsu tournament. And that's and that's my goal. So it's not Julio Cesar Chavez. I'm not fighting in the UFC or anything, but I'm like, I want to be in, in a tournament and learn that skill. And uh, And when I heard your story, I was like, that's incredible. That's exactly the, you know, like you just have this like, inner voice saying you have to redeem yourself. You just have to do that in your life. And I'm like, I might as well do it now. <laughs> so it should be, it should be an adventure. 
I, you know what? Uh, I, I really am glad you're going on this journey uh, because in the end, you're going to feel so happy. No matter what the accomplishment is, it's not even about winning or losing at that point because it's really about you looking inside yourself and understanding something about yourself that the whole story is about. And I could just tell you're ready to go on that journey. So you're going to have to keep me updated and I let me know. I will. It's going to be a lot of fun. I, in listening and, and uh, reading all of your stories, one question I ask, because I, I don't know the field very well, but is it usual or unusual for a writer to immerse themselves in all of these things like you have? Back when I was writing, there was a writer named George Plimpton. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Uh, he sort of made a living doing these things. He became a quarterback for the Detroit Lions during preseason. And they made a movie out of the experience called Paper Lion. And he went and played hockey. He got in the ring with Archie Moore, who was then light heavyweight champion, or had been light heavyweight champion. So I, there, there were examples to pull from. I don't, I don't know if people do it as much now uh, because what we had back in the day is magazines enabled me to pull off these dreams. They enabled me to go to Rio de Janeiro and dance in Carnival, get in the ring with Julio, Julio Cesar Chavez, run the marathon in New York. Uh, a, uh, there was a beer that I loved in Belgium called Triple Afflegem. And I found this beer when I just started to travel around the world in the early 80s. And I forgot where it was made. I, like, I just knew the name. But there was no internet back then. There was no way for me to find this beer. I, I would, when I got back to the United States, I would go look for it and it was impossible to find. And I thought, oh, I love this beer so much. It's my favorite beer ever and I'll never be able to drink it again. And then after I got married, right after I fought Julio Cesar Chavez, I was walking around a place that distributed beer and wine, and I stumbled upon a case of this beer. I couldn't believe it. I literally dropped to my knees and was hugging this beer. And I thought, I've got to get to the people who import this so they can tell me how to get more. So I called them up and they said, oh my goodness, we'll wait till the people who make this beer hear about this. You gotta go over and see them. So like the magazine 
sent me over to Belgium to meet the people. And I wrote a wonderful story about it. And afterward, again, there was no internet back then. People wrote paper letters to the magazines saying like, great story, or in this case, it was, Cal has no idea about beer. Like everybody knows the best beer in the world comes from the Czech Republic, Pilsner Urquell, and then you would get other letters from Germany. Like the letters are coming in from everywhere, from Ireland, just saying Cal is an idiot. He doesn't know what good beer is. So GQ then sent me back to <laughs> go to this spot in Belgium and I got cases and cases of this triple applicant beer and I went with a few buddies. And the idea was to challenge every beer we met along the way to we got to the Czech Republic uh, where there were two beers that others said were the best in the world and we were gonna challenge them. And it was a time where like, a magazine would fund you to go out and have these adventures. I don't know if it's like that anymore. I kind of doubt it. A lot of these experiences were product of the timing. And when you get the opportunity, you got to go with it because opportunity can often be very fleeting. And I'm really glad I made the most out of it. Are there any writers today that are doing this that you like and follow? I really don't see it. Uh, I don't read magazines the way I used to. Uh, and I, my life has kind of transitioned. And so now I'm on the internet or uh, watching Masterclass. Uh, and so I don't really follow it the way I do. But as soon as I hear like the story that you just told me, and I'm seeing you with those headphones and the ears are working good, I, I'm, I'm with you because those are beautiful stories. Uh, they're redemption tales and they allow us to look at ourselves in a different way. And when we go forward, we're no longer that person. I never have to worry about anybody in my family bringing up the Golden Glove story because they know that I'm gonna come in and bring up the Julio Cesar Chavez story. So it, it's, it's a beautiful thing to go on a journey like you're going on and I, I really look forward to seeing where this is going to take you. Oh, thank you. When I, when I think of your life, it's a compilation of all these stories. And a lot of them started with a, with a, a piece you were writing. But you know, one thing I know about you is you went on this 10-year trip around the world. And you were traveling. And you were traveling without really any money. And you were being very creative on trains and trying to meet people for lodging and food that that had there was no assignment there right for you to do that you just 
did it. But that changed the tra- trajectory, I think, of your life in many ways. And, and I, I read or listened to that also changed the way that you started asking questions in, the, in your uh, interviewing style. Can you take me back there and what happened? Yeah, well, what happened is, uh, this is early 80s, and I had been working for a magazine in New York called Inside Sports. It was, it was a great place to be a young writer because it brought in like the best writers and allowed them to write about their favorite things in sports. Uh, it competed with the best sports magazine at the time, Sports Illustrated. And when I came into New York to work for this magazine, I was immediately like transported off to the bar where every night, like writers like Hunter S. Thompson, uh, who Johnny Depp would later play in a movie, uh, Pulitzer Prize winners like David Halberstam, they, I'd be with them at the bar like night after night. And there was, like, a, like, there was fear and loathing in Las Vegas, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's just the best way to learn when you have people who are a generation or two older than you telling you stories. And it was, it was so fun. And the thing about it was like every day was another event. It wasn't a job. And the work would be, okay, Cal, go to Pittsburgh. The Steelers are going after their fifth Super Bowl ring. Uh, we want you to, you know, find out what the Steelers are thinking. And if you grew up loving sports the way I did, like this, this was not work. <laughs> this was a blast. And I was thinking of doing that for as long as I could. Except that it, the magazine was a startup, and like a lot of startups, it was critically acclaimed, but it was not a financial success. It was owned by Newsweek and the, New, and the Washington Post at the time, and they pulled the plug on it. And so here I am having this great gig, meeting all these wonderful people, going off to write stories that I wanted to, and I don't know what I'm going to do now. Do I just go back to a regular job? Uh, go back to a newspaper? It didn't. It just didn't seem right. So what happened is I just called up my mom and dad and I said, you know, I think I'm going to take some time off and do a little traveling. And my mom was always the most supportive person. She said, Cal, that's a wonderful idea. And little did she know when she said it that I wasn't going to be coming back for like 10 years. Although, like I did come back to see my family, but basically for a decade, uh, I would occasionally drop in, but I was somewhere else in the world. And the thing about this trip was that I didn't have much money. And when, as soon as I started to travel, I didn't know I was going off for 10 years. I thought this was gonna be like six weeks. 
Uh, but as soon as I did, uh, I met a friend of mine named Gary Smith. He was a sports writer for the same magazine. And he had gone earlier than me, and we made a plan to meet at Oktoberfest in Munich. And before I got there, Gary had stopped in Italy. And what he, what he had done is gone into a bus station and said to the person behind the counter, where's the next train going? Like, I want to take it. I, I, I don't, just tell me how much it's going to cost and I'm getting on the train. And he did. And he got off and just started walking down the road and like hitchhiking. And a crazy guy picked him up and brought him into a town called Castle Viscardo. And like 12 hours later, Gary Smith was the hero of Castle Viscardo. You know, they never had a foreign visitor in a hundred years. Everybody, Gaddy, get me a drink, drink my wine. And so he has the time of his life. He stays there for like six or seven days. And he comes to meet me in Munich and he's saying to me, like, you gotta come back to Castle Viscardo in Italy and see what this is like. And he's explaining to me how he just got on a train, got off, somebody picked him up, brought him to the town. And the next thing he knew, people were like giving him the keys to their apartment. In fact, the first night, somebody said, I gotta go to Rome. Here's a key to my apartment. You just stay here and I'll see you when I get back. And so I said, my God, what if, what if I could do that? And that was what set the trip in motion. I would just get on trains without knowing where they were going and look for an empty seat. Now, it's interesting because as I'm saying it, what we're talking about here is communication. Uh, I'm walking down that aisle on that train or that bus, and I don't have money to stay in hotels. So I need somebody on this train to invite me home. And now I've got to look and find just the right empty seat and a conversation is going to unfold. And at the end of that conversation, I, I need them to invite me home. And I, I'll tell you how seriously I took this, how high the stakes were. I, I'm walking down that aisle and I see a beautiful woman no rings on her fingers, beautiful young woman, could be a supermodel. She's smiling right at me. I just walked right on by because I knew there was no way that she was taking me home. But if I could find the 88 year old grandma in the back, uh, that could be the winner. And I can tell you lots of stories about the, all the grandmas that invited me home and not only grandmas, but I've had like 10 year olds invite me home and introduce me to their parents. And, and I basically would be invited into somebody's home. It would turn into a party. They would invite their friends and family. 
And now their friends and family would invite me to their home. And so I started to be basically passed from dinner table to dinner table to dinner table. And that is how I got around the world. But to your point, by the end of this, I had really learned how to communicate often without the use of language because I, I could be in a country where I didn't speak the language and now we're communicating through charades. And 10 years of that changed the way I interviewed and allowed me to see communication very differently. So when I came back to the United States, I, after I met the woman who'd become my wife and settled down, I started to work for Esquire magazine. And that's when I started to, and I'm sorry, my uh, cat's gonna look in a little at <laughs> time. I'll tell you a funny story about this. I was interviewing and Cat came at the perfect time. <laughs> uh, I was interviewing the actor Robert Duvall. You remember him, the consigliere oh, yeah. from The Godfather? Yeah. Or if absolutely. you ever saw The Great Santini? Yeah. So I go out to interview him. And as we're talking, he says to him, you know what? The, your photographer is going to come over in a little while. I'll take him out. And I guarantee you what happens. I've got this horse named Manu. Every time this horse sees me with a camera around, he's always trying to get in the picture. And so the interview wraps up. We have a great time. I leave. He goes off to be with the photographer. And a few months later, I pick up the magazine. And there is Robert Duvall in front of the corral. And this horse, Manu, has got his head right in front of Robert Duvall's. <laughs> so I told Sophie to cat the story, and uh, now you understand right, Sophie's appearance. What, what factors did you look at? Did you have some sort of spider sense to know who to sit by? I imagine after a while you, there was a formula maybe, or was it just pure gut? It's, it's pure gut, but we're, we're, we're finding out is your gut actually is sort of like your brain. And when your gut talks, you got to listen to it. And like after a while, I knew the people who were going to ask me what hotel you're staying at, you know, trying to gauge if I had any money. And like when I traveled around the world, I looked pretty, <laughs> I looked pretty poor. I, like that was kind of the idea. They're like, nobody's gonna think of robbing you when it doesn't look like you have anything. Uh, you know, I just had a little pack, some t-shirts, extra pair of pants, and didn't even have a camera uh, for much of the trip because quite stupidly, I, I didn't, at the time, want to make the experience inauthentic in any way. 
And I thought if I pulled out a camera and I started taking pictures, it would take the experience to another place. People start posing. You know how as soon as you take out a camera, people start posing? I didn't want that. So I just want to be living in the moment. So I just didn't take a camera with me. And it's really sad now that I look back because I really wish I could see some of those places again, see some of those people again. I mean, uh, a lot of them are, we're talking like 40 years. A lot of them are gone. And I did learn though, how to communicate often without even using the same language. And what this did when I came back to the United States and I started to interview Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and Mikhail Gorbachev and Muhammad Ali, I was very different from all the other journalists they came into contact with. Because when I walked in to see them, it was like I was walking down the aisle in the train and sitting next to them. And nothing, there was no artifice to it. There was no setup. Uh, I had not come to take them down or look for something hidden. I was just very curious the way I was when I was on the trains and the buses. And it really brought out different things in these people the icons of the last 75 years, like Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, than you would normally see in interviews because most of the other interviews came through a different prism. And the column that I wrote for Esquire was just about wisdom. It was called What I've Learned, and it allowed me to go on these adventures. And that was a beautiful experience for, oh, I would say almost 16, 17 years. I know that that you, uh, you did stop and talk to a beautiful girl once, and that beautiful girl ended up being your wife. But before we get there, I do have a question on the, on the folks that you interviewed. Was there a was there an answer that really surprised you from a question that you asked? And I know that's a loaded question because there could have been many, but was there one that sticks out in your mind? Well, what, what really sticks out in my mind are the surprising things that happen after the answers came out. So I'll give you an example. Uh, and this is a great story for anyone who's got a family and has not like documented it. And it goes back to my interview with Robert De Niro. And at the time, De Niro had a reputation as being a very distant subject in an interview, didn't like doing interviews, Uh, but he was in a lot of movies. And I believe contractually, every time a movie came out, he was obligated to do some press. And uh, 
Esquire basically made the arrangement to put him on the cover. And so he was obligated to put in a few hours to do the cover story. But he didn't want to do the interview. And so what happened is I, I knew a lot of people when they found out that I was going to interview him were saying, oh, Cal, this, this, could, be, this could be tough, not, not an easy interview. And so I went not understanding anything that was going to happen. Nothing. I, I, the only thing I knew was this could be tricky and it looks like we're doing it in his office upstairs. This is in downtown New York. And my concern was that he would be behind a desk and there would be like blockage between us. Because you got to remember, I'm used to interviewing and talking to people on the train. There's, there's no distance. We are almost, our legs are like jangling together when the train's moving. And being behind the desk and me on the other side was going to create distance. And I knew it was going to be hard enough to get through to him under any circumstances, but now I was contending with that. So I'm downstairs and I am waiting to be summoned up. I think I was supposed to go up at like 3.30 or so, and it's 3.45 and four o'clock, no Bob, 4.15, 4.30, no Bob. And I know he does not want to be interviewed. He doesn't like it, and now it's, staring him in the face. And finally, at five o'clock, the publicist comes down and says, Cal, I'm, I'm sorry, but it's, it's not going to happen today. But why don't you just, I don't know when we can do this, but why don't you go upstairs and just say hello? And then we'll see what we can figure out going forward. So I said, okay. And now... I'm actually kind of relieved because there was nothing I could do. I'll go back to the office. I'll say, how was it? And I said, didn't happen. Uh, but I go up the steps and I go in his office and he's feeling, you could tell, he, he didn't like having done that to me. I waited for an hour and a half and nothing happened. And he starts to apologize. I said, don't, don't worry, don't worry. You know, I really didn't want to interview you in your office anyway. Then, in fact, oh, I'm sorry. He's <laughs> really trying to get in here. I said, in fact, I didn't really even want to interview you at all. And now he's kind of looking at me like, you know how De Niro could get those squinty eyes, you know? Yeah. And I am looking at those squinty eyes and he's saying like, like, what's going on here? I said, what I really wanted, I just want to break bread with you. And he like laughs with a snort through his nose. Like, you want to what? You want to break bread with me? I said, yeah, I want to break bread with you. And he looks over at the publicist and 
the guy wants to break bread with me. I said, yeah, I want to break bread with you. And he says, what do I got? And Tuesday, one o'clock. Tuesday, one o'clock. We're going to break bread. The Tribeca Grill. Now, he owned the Tribeca Grill. Yep. I've been there a number of times. It's great. Okay. So I said, that's great. That's all I wanted. I'm happy. He's happy. See you Tuesday. So come back on Tuesday and I'm feeling great. I walk in and I, he's not, he hasn't arrived yet, but I said, you know, I'm here to see Bob. And he said, Oh, go over to his table. And they sit me down and I just start looking at the menu. His dad had, was an artist and had like painted the cover of the menu and I'm going through it and, and Bob sits down and the beauty of this is it's now gone from me sitting on a side of the desk with him on the other and me asking questions to me going through the menu saying like what's good here and he's like you like clams oh i love clams and and now he's saying oh leave just leave it to me and now he's like calling over the waiter and he's got auntie pasta coming and uh, wine and salad and meats and it's just it's beautiful and the the amazing part of it was because I'd said to him, I just want to break bread. The interview got lost. We were just (laughs) clinking glasses and I'm just happy to be with him. And then one of the things, and this probably applies in, uh, in your work, one of the most important things you can do is make somebody feel comfortable. If you can't make them feel comfortable, then they're going to, I should get my camera a little fixed here. Yeah, they're gonna do one of these numbers and it's just gonna be harder to reach them. So I said to him, you know, Bob, look, I told you, I just wanna break bread with you. But you know, I, I gotta do this interview so here's here's what I'm telling you. If there's anything I ask, anything at all that you feel is intrusive or bothersome, annoys you, just let me know and forget. Because I, I just want to break bread with you. And I said, don't worry about ask me anything you want. And we start to have a really deep conversation. And toward the end of the conversation. I asked him, I said, Bob, you got any regrets? And he's like, really thinking about this. And he said, you know, I do. I do. And he said, I always wanted to get my family history. Uh, And so not a while back, I called up my mom and I said, hey, mom, I'm going to send over a film crew. They're just going to ask you some questions about the past. We'll get a family history going. And his mom didn't like to be interviewed. 
And she starts saying, I don't know, this don't feel comfortable. And of course, he's hearing her voice and he knows how she feels because he don't like being interviewed. And so he says, oh, don't worry, forget it, we'll do it another time. And he said, uh, not long after that, his mom passed away and he never got to turn the cameras on and get her to tell the family story. Now, as soon as he said this, it's like alarms are going off in my head because my parents are about to have their 50th anniversary celebration. We booked a place, we've invited their friends and I realize, you know, we've never gotten their family history. And so as I'm walking out of the interview, I'm thinking, oh, we, we got to like make a film with all their family history in it. And so I got a camera. I started interviewing them, all their friends, family. And then I would meet celebrities and like ask them funny questions about my parents who they didn't know. And we just put it, put it in the middle of the movie. And the movie was about an hour long and we played it in pieces at their big party. And it was a huge hit. And getting back to the answer to your question, uh, right after that, I got letters from both my mom and my dad saying it was like the best night of their life. And it only came because of the question that I asked Robert De Niro and the answer that he gave me. And so I got to say, I was, I'm completely surprised that Robert De Niro helped give my parents the best or one of the best days of their life. And for me to watch them have that day made it one of the best days of my life. And so it just shows you the power of a simple question and listening to the answer and seeing where it can take you, which is just the rudiments of communication. I love that. That is such a profound life lesson as well. And and hearing about someone else, I, I mean, it's a great question. Uh, what someone wish wishes that would have happened that didn't and life got in the way in that case. And you, uh, you learn from that going back to your wife, you spent 10 years passing people by on the train and now you're on a bus. What made you stop and talk to her? Was it another gut feeling? So, so what happened is I am in Bolivia, middle of Bolivia and I get a call from the Washington Post Sunday Magazine saying, Cal, we're doing a story about beaches around the world. See, this is what I'm saying. I don't know that this is happening now. Where <laughs> you can be in the middle of South America and you get a call from a magazine said, we're doing a story about beaches around the world. Is there a beach in Brazil that you would like to write about? 
And I say, oh man, there's this beach. Actually, when I was traveling around Brazil that I heard about, like hardly anybody knows about it, but like you really wouldn't want to write about it because there are no hotels there. Uh, there's no infrastructure. Uh, but I'm told by people who have been there that it's the most beautiful beach in the world. And so, of course, the editor is saying, well, look, you, you got to go and just see what happens because maybe there's a great story here. And the name of the beach is called Jericoacoara. It's not down by Rio de Janeiro. It's way in the north of Brazil by the equator. And when I heard about it, it, it seemed surreal, something out of a movie. Uh, like beaches, sand that was so white. It's like being in the middle of the Sahara Desert with all those dunes and and the water was so crystal clear, it was like being in the Caribbean. And in order to get there, you had to go by mule back and crude sailing vessel. And on this little beach, there were just fishermen and they didn't even really take money. If you wanted to go and stay there for a few days, you went with a sack of rice and you bartered it with the fishermen for a hammock in front of their place and you'd eat the fish that they'd caught. And that's how business was done in Chiriquacuara. It was just another place from another time. And so I said, okay, I'll go. So I get to the nearest big city, it's called Fortaleza and as luck would have it, just that week, the first travel agency in Fortaleza offers trips to Jericoacoara. You don't have to take a donkey. You don't have to go on crude sailing vessel. They have these like sand buggies that can get you over the dunes and you get on a bus and the, and the buggies are going to be waiting to take you to the beach. And there's no hotels, but they've arranged accommodation with fishermen. And so it's perfect. So I arrive and the bus is leaving at midnight on Friday. I arrive early in the week. I get one of the last tickets. Little did I know that on that Friday, a call goes in to that travel agency, it's a woman, and says, and she says, I'd like a ticket to Jericoacoara tonight. And the guy in the agency says, I'm sorry, but we're all sold out. This is the first time we've taken this trip and word got out and we're packed. But if you want, you can go back in two weeks. That's the next trip. And she said, no, 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 I need to go tonight. And I said, but there's no seats. She says, well, if somebody decides not to go, can I get that seat? And he said, fine, give me your number. I'll call you. Well, she doesn't wait. An hour later, she calls back and she says, Any, anybody cancel? No. Hour after that, she calls back. Anybody cancel? Nope. Every hour on the hour, she's calling travel agency, just seeing if somebody's canceled so she can get on the bus.
no, 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 no. So finally at 10 o'clock at night, she calls, probably figuring it's the last time. And the guy said, I'm sorry, no cancellations. He said, but you know what? I can tell you really want to go to Jericoacoara. So how about this? For half price, you can stand in the aisle. Great, she says. And she just throws some clothes in a bag, runs off to the bus station. Uh, at midnight, I am with a bunch of people. It's completely dark. The door to the bus opens. We all board. I take a middle seat or an aisle seat in the middle of the bus. It's dark and base of the bus is now packed with people and we're waiting for the bus to take off. And then just after midnight, right before the bus door closed, I see a silhouette coming up the steps and starting to walk down the aisle. And the silhouette stops right next to me. And I can't even see her face. It's dark. I can just see the shadow. And I look up and I just knew, there she is, there she is. And of course I said to her, would you like my seat? And she said, no, and turned away. And so the bus started to roll along and a few hours later, I think I asked again about an hour later, she said, no. And finally, the guy sitting next to me just stood up, grabbed her, and put her in his seat. And we've been married 29 years now and three kids. And that's how it happened. Wow, that, that's a beautiful story. And now, we, now uh, you, well, after that, you came back to the States. You continued your, your writing journey, had many other adventures along the way. And I don't know exactly when, but I'm excited to find out. You met Larry King. And sadly, Larry King just, just passed away recently. And I know you became good friends with him. You had breakfast with him, what, almost every day for, for a decade. And uh, watched him meet, yeah. watched him meet uh, Honey Nut Cheerios at the Jewish Deli. How did you and him meet and become friends? So that column that I told you about for Esquire magazine, it was called What I've Learned. And I was sent out to interview Larry for that column. And the interview was, went across really well. It came out great in the magazine. Larry saw it. And it was like one long, funny story. And so he always remembered it. And I think about six or seven years after that, it turned out we both had the same literary agent. And the agent and I were talking, asking each other how we're doing. And the agent said, well, you know, uh, I am, uh, it looks like we're going to be doing a book with Larry King. And I said, oh, man, like I've, I've spent a little time with him and I can almost write the proposal right now without even having to talk to him. And so he called up Larry. Larry remembered me. 
we got together and Larry said, come on out to Los Angeles and we'll research the book. You can research the book and we'll, we'll write it. Uh, I was living on the East Coast at the time and I figured, wow, this is, uh, this is a really good opportunity. I can take my kids and my wife out to the beach and stay the summer and do all the research for the book. And then when it's time for them to go back to school, we'll all go back to North Carolina and I can write from there. And Larry invites me to breakfast in Nate Niles, and he's got all of his buddies from New York at the table. And I immediately become like part of the gang. And one of the crazy things that happened, you know, everything is timing, is it took a while for the contracts to get done. And so Larry didn't want to get started until the T's were crossed and the I's were dotted. And so as we're just becoming friends, but I don't really have the hardcore material to go back and write the book. And just at the end of the summer, just about the time we're supposed to go back, the contract comes through and now I've, I've got to stay there to interview him to get the information to put in the book. My wife and kids say, we don't, we don't want to leave you. And so we decide to stay in LA. And that was the start of having breakfast with Larry every day for like 11 years. And it was an amazing mentorship because while I learned to interview, I never interviewed with a microphone, never interviewed with a camera. And Larry would take me to his show every night and he would put me off right on the side of where he was interviewing, it was just out of the range of the camera, but I was able to pick up everything that he was doing. And so you can imagine, and that lasted for about a year and a half, two years at CNN. And so I was just having a mentorship, like at the midpoint in my life with somebody who was one of the best communicators like ever on the planet. And I was also starting to go with him to dinner and he did a comedy show, a 90 minute comedy show. Not many people know that he would have been a comic if had he not gone into radio and broadcasting. And I started to observe the way he spoke on stage. And over time, all the things that he was doing, like, I was just kind of breathing in. And after a while, life moved me in the direction where you know, the magazine started to have trouble. And I was asked to speak. And as soon as I got up on stage, it was like I immediately knew what I was doing because I'd been watching it for 10 years. I've been watching him walk on the stage, talk, walk off. I was with him the whole time. So I just transferred it through my own body. And that's right around the time 
that I started to go out and speak. And when we did the Spartan documentary, when it started. And, and so like wrapping around the whole conversation, you can kind of gauge uh, where I was at that point. I was basically in a startup going around now speaking and it only hits me now that he's passed how much that he gave to me uh, because and it goes back to a lot of the things that we're talking about this the level of confidence that you have like after you've been on stage and spoken to thousands of people you're never worried about speaking in front of people again. And I feel very comfortable in front of the mic now. And I'm actually starting off on my next journey, adventure, whatever you want to call it. Uh, because right after that Spartan race, and it wasn't, it was a, there was a little break between the, that point and when the coronavirus hit. And I was speaking constantly during that time and I was about to have my best year ever, uh, ever, ever, ever in anything that I'd done when the virus hit and basically wiped out the whole speaking circuit. And so I remembered what I've been told by a surfer in an interview. I don't know if you've ever heard of Laird Hamilton. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he goes out where there's like 60 foot waves in the middle of the ocean. That <laughs> boat takes him out there. And, and I said to him, Laird, what happens when you go down under like a 60 foot wave? Like it, it, this is not like, it's hard enough on the shore. This is in the middle of nowhere under all that energy. And he said, I'll tell you what I do. First thing that I do is I close my eyes. I don't even waste any energy trying to see. I want to conserve as much energy as I possibly can. I let my arms kind of go limp at my sides because I know the ocean is going to ragdoll me like I'm in a washing machine. And it's going to take me where it wants to take me. There's nothing I could do about it. There's no sense in fighting. And he said, and the way he described it was really beautiful because he needs to breathe. But the way he described the ocean was the ocean breathes too. Tide goes in, tide comes out. And there's going to be a moment under that water you can hold out long enough where the pressure is going to come off. And the moment you feel that, the moment the ocean communicates that to you, that's when your eyes open and that's when you go for the surface. And so I, I, I put that in my pocket as a piece of wisdom. And as soon as the coronavirus hit, I said, I'm going Laird Hamilton here. You know, I just lost all my bookings for a year. It, it's, it's, you can 
fight and get angry and mad. And I said, I'm not, I'm not going to get mad. I'm fine. And I'm just going to listen to what's going on around me and wait for the moment to rise. And I start listening and I'm hearing about all these companies that are furloughing their employees, firing their employees. And look, I understand that there's the business is drying up, but at the same time, people are now losing not only their income, but the health insurance that is often tethered to their jobs. So they got no money coming in and there's no health insurance at the time of the greatest pandemic in a hundred years here. And I just thought to myself, you know what? This is wrong. Just, I don't have, I don't advocate any, any plan. I just know it's wrong that the country, we should have a safety net. The country should be taking care of each other at this moment. Yep. And I had spoken at hospitals and at hospital associations over that time period. So I knew that healthcare was in trouble. I knew that every day on average before COVID, a physician in the United States committed suicide. Now that number may be twice. Uh, the average age of people who can go into the military, uh, I knew that only one in four was in shape to enter the military. Uh, the, and I knew that doctors, when they started to talk to their patients, couldn't get beyond 10 seconds of listening to a patient without interrupting because they were under so much pressure to get the appointment done in a certain amount of time to get to the next patient. And there were just huge lapses in communication. And so I said, you know what? I've got hopefully another 30 years here. What if I spent that time just trying to reshape healthcare in this country? And I just got on my podcast and said, here's what I'm doing. And you know, the craziest thing about this, you would have expected people to say like, Cal, you don't know anything about healthcare. You're a complete novice. You're that 16 year old going into the ring in the golden gloves without any experience. Nobody said that. Everybody like was behind me. It was like, nobody else has figured this thing out, Cal, go for it. And I had this amazing conversation and it's kind of interesting to just maneuver it now that we're getting towards the end of the conversation with a guy named Laurent Duvernay Tardif, who won a Super Bowl ring with the Kansas City Chiefs a year ago as an offensive guard protecting Patrick Mahomes. And 
after he won that Super Bowl, uh, COVID hit, and he was placed in an odd situation because Laurent is also a doctor in his native Canada. And so he had to make a choice between going back to the Kansas City Chiefs to make another run for a Super Bowl ring or going to work on the front lines against COVID in a long-term care facility and move forward with his medical career. And he, and he chose to go to the front lines, I leave football and go to the front lines. And I'm talking to him about it. And the conversation wound to this amazing place where he was saying to me, you know, Cal, when I first arrived on the job, like people were asking him for autographs because they knew he was a Super Bowl winner. And at first he would like say, no, like I'm the doctor. I'm not that guy. I'm your doctor. But after a while, since a lot of these patients were old, he realized that, wow, their families aren't coming in to see them. They're all alone. And they're not going to be leaving this facility. Either they're going to, if they get COVID, they may die. Uh, or they can stick around and eventually that's probably going to be their last stop. And he realized that what they needed most was to be communicated with. And it changed his entire look at what he was going to do in the future. Uh, he, he realized that, wow, I've got this platform. I should be using what I've learned in medicine as a way of communicating with large numbers of people, as opposed to seeing like eight patients a day. And as he said this to me, uh, the word communication just flashed in front of me because I realized that all the problems that I was seeing in healthcare could be seen through the lens of communication. I'll give you an example. Uh, you go into the hospital and you ask, how much is this going to cost? You never get an answer. It was, we'll send you the bill. Now, if I say to you, okay, you're going to leave this, you're going to go out to the supermarket, you're going to buy a, a gallon of milk, and you're going to take it up to the counter, and the cashier is going to start to hit the number. The cashier doesn't say, hey, Joe, we'll let you know in six weeks. The cashier says, oh, you like organic milk? It's going to be five sixty-nine, whatever it is. And... I just realized that the failure to communicate is what is embedded in so many of these problems. And it was, it was wild because Larry passed away the day before I spoke with Laurent. And so up to that point, I saw what I was do, trying to do in healthcare, like talking to people, putting them on my podcast. But I always looked at myself as the 16-year-old who was in the ring 
I mean, it's the same thing, the, like the night that you get clobbered and went home and couldn't hear. Uh, I was I, I was over my head. I didn't know what everybody else knew. But I that's was, the I best, was, though, because it's a fresh perspective. It, exactly. So You're zoomed out. You, and I talked to this billionaire named Naveen Jain, who has started a company that examines what's inside your gut. It's called Viome, like to do saliva tests, and they can tell what your body needs. The idea being that your gut is going to be different from my gut, your friend's gut, your sibling's gut. And this test can tell you this is what you should be putting in your body. And he said to me, Cal, I want you to look at it this way. Experts can never really fix anything. They can improve it 10 or 15%, but only somebody who comes in from the outside, the novice, the person who doesn't know anything and asks a question that makes everybody say, oh my God, we never thought about that. That person can make things 10 times better using that outside perspective that you just identified. And so this all happened in like 24 hours, Larry King passed away and Laurent told me that story about how communication was the most important thing he learned in his year on the front lines. And the podcast finished and he must've heard something going on in my head because this hardly ever happened. In fact, it's the only time I've ever it's ever happened to me. You, sometimes somebody will very nicely say, Cal, send me the podcast when it's going out and I'll send it out on social media. Laurent didn't say that. He said, you know what? Can you send me that podcast? I, I want to listen to it. It was almost like he could tell something was going on in my head. And, and it was because I realized in that moment that he had like thrown a block for me. And now like I'm out there running in the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl of problems. And Larry has taught me everything about communication that he could pass on. And I'm gonna see this problem through the lens of communication. And as soon as I started telling people in healthcare this, you should see their faces like, oh man. And there's this line from the movie Cool Hand Luke. Uh, I don't even have to set it up. It just stands for itself where uh, Paul Newman is told, what we have here is failure to communicate. And I just knew if I looked at every problem, and, and this probably applies with every industry. Every industry, business. Every, every business. Every business. <laughs> uh, if I could solve those problems, I could, I could make massive changes in the world. And so that's, that's where we are right now. I've been given this beautiful mentorship of 12 years and this great block by a Super Bowl lineman. And now 
I am ready to go out in the world and change it through better communication. I wish you could see my office walls. We created what's called tenants. You obviously know what tenants are, but we put them on the wall. And this is right probably a year after I created the the company in 2012-ish. And number one is to communicate effectively. That's the number one tenant on the wall. Wow. Look at this. If only I had met you years (laughs) ago, Jim. I would have to go through all this. Yeah, I I mean, the company is 650 employees now. And communication, number one, like number one, hands down. Communication with clients, with employees, and effective communication at that, right? You can use Slack and all these tools, but... There's all, there's too much uh, sometimes. By the way, I do want to say the Big Questions podcast, the tribute you did to Larry King and the Mapo story. I was listening to it late at night. My wife goes to sleep a few hours before I do because I'm still working. My mind's, my brain's going. So that's when I start to wind down and I'm listening to the podcast and I just start busting out laughing like out loud. And she's like, and she, I, to the point where I woke her up it is so good. It is so good and and so eloquent the way you did it. Larry would be proud, my friend. Like it was, it was awesome. I shared it with a bunch of people. I, I highly encourage anyone listening to this to listen to that because it's so funny. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Joe. I really appreciate this. I have a few. And I'm so happy to yeah. hear about the first tenant. Uh, it, it's just yeah. more support. I, I probably could do this in any field, uh, but uh, it sounds to me like healthcare needs it the most, although maybe not. You'd, you'd have to tell me. Well, the the rest of the tenants, just to let you know what they are, number two is is to be transparent. That's you know a challenging one when you have to deliver bad news. To be transparent is tough. Three is to learn. You always got to be curious and learn. Four is to, to innovate, and that's how we were able to grow as an organization. People knew us for innovation. And then five, uh, you know, one of the most important is, is, is to give back. And that's what um, you know, I think I mentioned to you or you heard about Refuel, the conference I put on. But that was created for my employees initially. And now this last year, we had 10,000 people tune in virtually. That's a blessing, wow. through, blessing from COVID. Like this is an in-person event. I would sell it out. And we raised, uh, so we raised last year when it was in person, $35,000 for a local food pantry. This year, because we wow. touched more people, we got 560 donations in two hours. We raised $85,000. So it's, wow. so we're, and it's, uh, and it's still like meant for the employees in the, in the company and it's not marketing or anything. It's stories like this. It's people that inspire others and, uh, and it's, one of the best days of the, of the year for many, many people because it starts off their next year right. And it's called refuel because you go in the entire year and you're just burnt out. You know, you're putting in, in your work for your either your your family or yourself, but you're not really giving back to yourself ever. It's just go, go, go. So that's that's why it was uh it was it was created and and uh those tenants are something that you know we we still live by today and we we look at. So as you go down this journey. Maybe some of those other ones will help because transparency in the medical field needs to be improved just by your example. Yeah, there, there you go. I mean, everything you said, it, it, they're literally my tenants now. 
<laughs> I'll put them up on my wall and I'll give you full credit. Yeah, uh, I appreciate that. Um, the, a, a couple of quick questions. I know we got to wrap up soon because you have to go, but how important is it to smile? It's huge. Uh, depending on the situation, uh, some people, you know, I remember reading that Osama bin Laden uh, criticized his son for smiling. And, uh, you know, kind of tells you where his mind was at. Uh, and I just think when you authentically smile, you I know for a fact you are releasing chemicals that other people are picking up on and making them feel welcome. So not only are, like, are those chemicals telling you that you're happy, it's telling other people, and it's a, just a huge part of communication. Again, communication is 10% the words, 30% your tone of voice, 60% the body language. So that smile is 60% of what you want to say. When I read your columns and things you wrote, I feel a smile in there. And that's one of the reasons why I asked that question. The second, and by the way, these are random. Um, has there been a quote that you found in your life by someone that has touched you in a certain way? You know, if you go to my Twitter column, I call it a column, but every day I put out a new quote. And it's very much what the style was in the what I've learned column. It was just wisdom that people had picked up. And I was just thinking about this the other day. It's what I've done with Twitter. I hardly ever tweet out other things. I don't comment on what's going on. I just, every morning I put up another quote. And it's amazing how many people come just to see what today's quote of the day is. Uh, and I, I, you know, I've had people saying, Cal, why don't like you say something? Uh, but I really think it's a beautiful thing to use somebody else's quote to get a point across. And if anybody who's listening just wants to go to Cal Fussman on Twitter, that you can just go back and you can get a lot of wisdom just looking at those quotes I've been putting up day after day for years now. Is there one that sticks with you? Um, well, the one, the one that sticks with me, I don't know if I've ever put it up. It's, it comes from Muhammad Ali, and it's, it's about understanding whatever situation you're in, you have some resources to get out of it. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking here cause I don't, I don't want to mess it up. 
and I, I've got like a few quotes that are spinning around in my head and they're all competing <laughs> to come out. Uh, but basically the idea, the idea behind it is that whatever situation you're in, God has given you the resources to find your way out of it. And if I, if it, I don't want to misquote it, so I'm just going to hold off from now and I can, I can send it back to you and then you can put it up. Okay. Mine is, uh, if it jogs your memory, mine's by Hemingway and it's, you have to go create your own luck. I love that one because everything you've done, you know, and I look at, think about Cool Hand Luke and the challenge, remember the egg challenge in that movie? And oh, man, yeah. <laughs> the last one. So for those of you who haven't seen that, I recommend seeing it, but he's he kind of throws out this own challenge. And I think he's the one that creates the challenge to say like, hey, I'm going to eat 50 eggs and and uh, everyone's uh, betting against him, but he's creating his own adversary, creating a story, and he's he's learning from it. But you know, it's all of those things that you're you know you can sit back and not do anything and watch reality TV, and you're not really creating your own luck. But when you do what you're doing and you put this stuff in the world, and you're you're having these conversations and you're fighting Julio Cesar Chavez and and working with Joe and the, on the Spartan race, uh, training and, and doing it, like you're, you're, you're an epitome of that, which is, uh, which is great. But you know, that's, that's why I created this podcast. It's like you put it out in the world, you're creating something that doesn't exist. And every one of your stories have, have done that. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm sorry. I can't come up with that exact phrasing of the quote, uh, I'll send it to you after we're done. You can put it in the intro or the outro. <laughs> no, I will. I'll, I'll overlay it in this section. Okay, I got it. I got oh, you it. found it? I got it. God will not place a burden on a man's shoulders knowing he cannot handle it. Love it. There you go. I'm glad I was able to pull that out. There were a few other quotes there circling around with it, but. And, and expanding on that, though, if you think about the and, and I know you have the deep meaning of that, it's like when you face adversity, you may not realize what's happening, but then all of a sudden you, you open a door to something anew, and then that creates another door, and it may be really dark and murky in that area, but at the other end of it, you look back and you're like, that's, that is why that happened, and I, I know you had said like you wouldn't change really anything in your life because at that moment at the exact time and and on that bus is when you met your the love of your life and if anything had changed before that it would have changed that time and you may not have been there that's exactly right and we're on to the next chapter and as we say this i actually gotta go because somebody is waiting for me at uh, 501 here but i want to say thank you it was a beautiful conversation joe and I love your tenants, and I hope to see you down the tracks, hope to see you at a Spartan race, and I hope to see you doing something magnificent with jujitsu. And it, I just want to leave you with one compliment, the balance that you have to do everything that you did and be the father 
and husband you are um, was amazing just to hear everything you've, you've done with your kids and being there to watch your kid kick the football. And that's something I'm aspiring to daily. So thank you very much for your time, Cal. And I hope to, to meet you in, uh, in person soon. Let's do it. All right. Take care. Thank yeah. you.